the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What we just heard from St. Matthew's Gospel in his Passion account of our Lord Jesus most certainly does transcend our wonder. It is simply impossible to wrap our minds around what God has suffered for us. And yet, St. Paul admonishes us this morning to try and to succeed, to wrap our mind around it, to have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think the way Jesus thought. Have his attitude. And after saying this, our text from Philippians 2 proceeds to display very clearly for us what that attitude looked like of Christ. The attitude which God wants all of us to have. In one word, it is humility. It is what is displayed in the Passion account of all the evangelists. That's what we call those four men who wrote the Gospels, and which we will hear from Mark, Luke, and John also this week. The root of all sin is pride. It was pride to which Satan appealed when he told Eve that she would be like God. Pride is the vice of all vices. Pride says, I want what I want when I want it and forget everyone else. Pride says, I don't have to put up with that. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And if pride can make allowances and own some fault or guilt on one's own part, yet pride will say that the one who brings it up isn't worthy to do so, and will balk at rebuke with feigned humility because the one who rebukes shouldn't be the one to say it. Pride says, give me respect while showing disrespect to others. Pride says, let my will be done. And if God's will is different from mine, then forget God. But humility, as we've just heard and seen depicted for us, by St. Matthew, says the exact opposite. It says, not my will, but God's will be done. It says, I want what God wants. It says, I will put up with anything if it will help my neighbor and serve my God. Humility says, when you treat me with disrespect, I will still love you. It says to God, if my will is different from your will, then forget mine and conform me to yours. For you are my God. Humility embraces suffering, if that is God's will. Humility takes insults, abuse, and even shame. Humility is living the mind of Christ. To know the mind of Christ and to be genuinely humble is not something that we can do for ourselves. How can you make yourself humble? You can't. But God can And he engages your mind. Shortly before our epistle begins, St. Paul starts chapter 2 of Philippians by asking, not even asking, just the conditional clause, if there is any consolation in Christ, is there? If there is any comfort of love, 
fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any mercy, this is what compels us to think like Christ. It is God who does it for us by opening to our minds and putting into our hearts the great mystery of Christ and the consolation of his love. God beautifully reveals to us the true humility of Christ in these words of St. Paul. And he graciously joins us to that Christ, giving us his mind and attitude. To know the mind of Christ, we must first know who he is. During this Holy Week, we see quite clearly what Jesus did and what happened to him. He rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and was hailed as the son of David, as we heard before the children came in. He is the promised Savior, and the crowd loved him. They would not leave him. They put palms on the road before him. They adored him. And yet it was not just praise that Jesus wanted from eager and excited crowds who could not deny that he was more than other men. It was faith that Jesus wanted, faith that produces the truest praise, even when that praise is nothing but a sigh to God, who by all counts has also forsaken you. Jesus wanted the crowds to do more than see his glory and glorify him for it. He wanted them to worship him as God in his suffering and dying. He wanted them to see more than the glory that can't be ignored. He wanted them to see his glory that can only be seen by those who know what salvation they need from sin and death and shame. He wanted them to do more than think much of him. He wanted them to think like him. To regard and praise God's glory not only in triumph, but also in pain and suffering. And who is this man who teaches us to think so? Who willingly leaves the praises and honors that we would live our lives to receive, that were laid upon him and abandons it all? in order to endure the terror and pain of crucifixion. This man was God, the only God who is. As the Gospel of St. John so clearly teaches us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was God, he is God, he will always be God. God the Son became flesh and blood inside the virgin's womb, and this, the great mystery we call the Incarnation, tells us that our Lord Jesus is and always will be true God and true man, and since he was indeed God, he had the form of God. That means that he had all the honor, glory, and status of God himself. When God became man, he didn't change. God is immutable. He cannot change. Jesus, the God-man, has all the attributes of God. Is God almighty? So is Jesus. Is God all-knowing? Then so is Jesus, the God-man. Is God omnipresent, holy, just, merciful, faithful? Then so is Jesus, the God-man. Everything you can ever say about God, you can say about Jesus. And we don't know what to say about God or to think about God. So Jesus shows us how to think 
about God by showing us how to think like God. If we put it into theological language, all of the divine attributes of Jesus are shared also by the human nature of Jesus. And see what this God-man does. He who looks like God because he is God takes on the form of a servant, a slave, and lives a life of perfect submission, perfect obedience, perfect humility. He does so all the way to the cross. He has all the divine attributes, but willingly chooses not to make full use of them. Could he not have commanded thousands of angels to protect him from the Roman troops? Could he not have avoided his capture, his unjust trial, the mocking, the whipping, the nails, and the thorns? Had he lost his power? Did becoming a man mean that he wasn't really true God anymore? Of course not. He humbled himself. And you know why he did so. He did so in order to do what we failed to do. He lived the one life that is holy for all people. Everything God told you to do, Jesus, the humble slave, did. And Jesus gives you the credit for his obedience. Not only did he do what we failed to do, he suffered all that you and I deserved to suffer so that we would not have to suffer for it. He willingly took the blame for our sins and he freely gives us the credit for his own humble obedience. This is the Jesus whom God has exalted and given the name that is above every name. This is the Jesus whom we confess to be God of gods and Lord of lords. This is the Jesus before whom every knee will bow. It is the Jesus who humbled himself and brought glory to us by bearing our shame. This is the Jesus into whose name we were baptized to make us innocent, not by ignoring the death that our sins have caused, but by running to it, by being wrapped in it and buried with it. It is the Jesus whom we confess in the creed. This Jesus comes to us in our weakness, our sin, our failures, our shame. And for this Jesus For this, Jesus literally experienced our weakness, our sin, our failures, and our shame. We promise our faithfulness to this Jesus, to his holy word and sacraments, which are his means of grace, because it is precisely in these means of grace that Jesus gives himself to us and washes us clean with his precious blood. And he gives us humility, He gives us humility. He works it in our hearts by humbly bearing our sins and humbly offering his life for us as a ransom to God. And so we are given the mind of Christ, the attitude of Jesus, the humility of the Son of God. We know what that humility means. It means that as Jesus, the rightful owner of all glory in heaven, humbled himself for us to embrace our shame, so we who are baptized into union with Jesus Christ are called to live the life of Christ, the life of humility, casting contempt on all our pride. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ, to have humility. But there is something that it doesn't mean. There's one thing in life about which we have no right to be humble. And that is the truth of God's word, which God calls on us to confess. 
When it comes to our lives, we live humbly because we are sinners who in sinful pride have offended against God and hurt one another by sinning against each other. We live humbly because everything good and pure that we are and have is God's free and gracious gift which we haven't deserved. But when it comes to God's word, his doctrine, his holy truth, there is absolutely no place for humility in our confession. We have not earned the opinions of mere men. We have received instruction from God himself. We have learned in Luther's small catechism the pure and unchangeable truth of God's word, not because Luther taught it, but, but because it is the truth revealed in Holy Scripture. When you are called upon to confess the truth, confess it boldly. When there is someone who is running from the truth or hiding from the truth, whose sin people are too polite to point out, but you must give a, a confession of what is true because you love this person and you know that God does too. Don't think for one moment that it is the mind of Christ to be wishy-washy when it comes to saving, confessing that saving truth that we have been taught. When Jesus was hauled before Pilate, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Can you imagine Jesus saying, well, I believe I'm the Son of God. That's my personal opinion. This is my understanding. This is what I have come to kind of think, you know? But, of course, if you don't believe it, I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just saying that it doesn't really matter so much as we all are sincere in what we think. But that's not thinking like Jesus. That's not the mind of Christ, and that's not the mind of a Christian. And it's not humility, which runs away from confessing God's truth. It is craven cowardice. It is unbelief. Our lives will be filled with errors and shortcomings. But there is no error and there is no shortcoming in the true and saving doctrine which we have learned and which we as Christ's church place this confidence which he has given to us. That is why this, the pure doctrine of God, is the most precious treasure we have on earth. It will keep us in the true faith. It will bring us true peace on earth, and it will lead us safely to heaven. Faith alone makes us Christians, but it is by our confession of the truth that we are known as Christians. It is by our confession of truth that we remind one another as fellow Christians that there is consolation in Christ that there is comfort of love and that we are bound to the same fellowship of the Spirit in Christ. And so we confess what God has given to us to confess. We confess his saving truth until the day we die and our Lord Jesus confesses us before his Father who is in heaven. Today is Palm Sunday. We did things a little differently than I've ever done them today. Probably most of you were confirmed once upon a time on Palm Sunday. I was, 25 years before my youngest son was born, actually. And this is because in the early days when this congregation and school had first begun, the school year would have ended for the summer in time for Holy Week. Wouldn't that be nice? 
Confirmation has been pushed back in recent years for the sake of finishing up our children's instruction. But all that notwithstanding, there is hardly a better time to make your vows than right before we consider the events of this holy week in Easter, even if you have made your vows already. The vows we have taken, however, are not the vain assurances of the disciples who all said, even if we have to die with you, we will not deny you. No, those vows were broken as soon as they failed to watch and pray one hour. The vows we have taken to Christ, rather, are vows that find no such confidence in our own courage. They are vows that take confidence in Christ's courage. Do you intend to hear the word of God and receive the Lord's Supper faithfully? Do you intend to live according to the word of God? And in faith, word and deed, to remain true to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even to death. Do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? To each of these questions, all of you who will be receiving this morning the Lord's crucified and risen body and blood for the remission of your sins, all of you once responded, I do by the grace of God. Remember this, dear Christians. The disciples made their vows hastily, and one by one they abandoned their Lord. They made their promise based on their own pride and fleshly courage and confidence. But you have not. You have made your pledge and vow based on Christ's humility and grace. And you suffer all, even death, with Jesus by seeing him suffer death and even all sin for you. And here you find the grace of God. And here you find that grace given to you. You find it where the events of this holy week are remembered and celebrated by all the faithful, not merely in triumphal assurance, but in humble dependence on what Jesus has done for us. For without the grace displayed and fulfilled in these coming days, we have broken vows and shame. But we have the mind of Christ. And with it, we think like Christ. And as our Savior did unto his bitter end, and as he continues to do even now with us this morning, and as often as we gather to receive the fruit of his passion, we think upon his mercy without ceasing and return to it where it is offered to us in the name of the Lord. Amen.